Good afternoon. This is Dr. Dan Guerra. Come to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios on the 13th of February, 2021. On this Valentine's Day Eve, I thought I would break away from our discussions of aging, immune response, and most recently about adipokines and the cell cycle, and kind of um, just generate a sweet lecture on a much larger aggregation of understanding of how biochemistry fits into the cell and how the cell fits into metaphysics. So it's kind of like my bouquet of roses for Valentine's Day. So what I want to tell you is the following. First of all, I will make a statement that all life is cellular. In this cell, what is contingent and what is necessary can be a question, question at least I think about. So what about energy coupled redox biochemistry? Good place to start. Energy must be acquired and in uh, aerobic organisms, this is most efficiently affected via oxidative phosphorylation. So the reducing power of NADH and FADH2 as generated during the oxidation of reduced carbon compounds like fatty acids and carbohydrates via enzymes such as the dehydrogenases is ultimately used to drive electrons and protons through the chemiosmotically described electron transport chain of the inner mitochondrial membrane to ultimately produce ATP through a proton pumping ATP synthase. This is of course facilitated by intramembrane lipid-based hydride carriers for example, ubiquinol, ubiquinone pool, and a series of progressively lower electrochemical potentials associated with either iron or copper containing proteins. And these are embedded in the coupling membrane. As protons are pumped back into the mitochondrial matrix, the ATPase phosphorylates ADP, and then ATP is generated. And the electron motive force drives the reduction of, of course, molecular oxygen to H2O. Now, besides covalent bond energies, which all of that entails, we can also look at this um, from the cumulative power of weak chemical forces. Okay, so this is something that I have talked about, of course. Um, I don't remember when, but it's been a while. So what kind of forces are we talking about? Well, we've got van der Waals uh, interactions which have a strength of about 0.4 to 4 kilojoule per mole. Then we have hydrogen bonds, which have a much stronger uh, energy, about 12 to 30 kilojoule per mole. And the distance that hydrogen bonds work at is about 0.3 nanometer, whereas van der Waals work within that range, but they go a little bit higher, 0.3 to about 0.6 nanometer. So van der Waals interactions, remember, um, the strength depends on the relative size of the atoms or the molecules and the distance between them. So the size factor determines the area of contact between the two molecules. The greater the area, stronger the interaction. Whereas hydrogen bonds, the relative strength is proportional to the polarity of the hydrogen bond donor and the polarity of the hydrogen bond acceptor. More polar atoms form stronger hydrogen bonds. Think about oxygen, for example, and water. Then you have the third kind of weak chemical force, ionic interactions. Their strength is about 20 kilojoule per mole. 
distance that they operate in is close to the hydrogen bond, about 0.25 nanometer. And here the strength also depends on the relative polarity of the interacting charged molecular species or ionic species. Some of the ionic interactions are also like hydrogen bonds, for example, ammonium and carboxylic acids, right? We've talked about those too. Finally, there's the really interesting, because I'm a lipid biochemist, I find them the most interesting, uh, I won't hide that, are the hydrophobic interactions. Now, their strength uh, vary, but it could be up to 40 kilojoule per mole. And it's aggregate. And distance doesn't seem to really play that much of a role, interestingly. So for hydrophobic interactions, the force is, is definitely a complex phenomenon because it's determined by the degree to which the structure of water or some kind of other polar solvent, water is the most common, becomes disordered um, as a discrete hydrophobic molecule or molecular regions coalesce. So hydrophobic interactions require polar and nonpolar organic, usually because it's biochemistry substances, right? And so the event ontology has to do with altering the structure of water as you form a new amorphous structure associated with hydrophobic molecules, and they separate out, like oil and water, for example. So those are four weak chemical forces that we talked about. So van der Waals forces is really a general term, and it's used to define the attraction of intermolecular forces between molecules, right? There are two kinds of van der Waals. You have the weak linear dispersion forces, and then you have the stronger dipole-dipole. So the chance an electron of an atom is in a certain area in the electron cloud at a specific time is called the electron charge density. Since there's no way of knowing exactly where the electron is located, and since they do not all stay in the same area 100% of the time, if the electrons all go to the same area at once, a dipole is formed momentarily, even if a molecule is nonpolar. So this displacement of electrons causes a nonpolar molecule to become polar for at least a moment, okay? Now, since the molecule is <clears throat> polar, this means that all the electrons are concentrated at one end the molecule is partially negatively charged on that end. This negative end makes the surrounding molecules have an instantaneous dipole also, and that attracts the surrounding molecule's positive end. That process now is the London dispersion forces of attraction. The ability of a molecule to become polar and displaces electrons is known as the molecule's polarizability and the more electrons a molecule contains, the higher its probability to become polar. So when the molecules become polar, the melting and boiling points are raised because it takes more heat and energy to break those bonds. Therefore, the greater the mass, the more electrons are present, and the more electrons present, the higher the melting and boiling point of those substances. The London dispersion forces are stronger in those molecules that are not compact, such as a long chain hydrocarbon or a complex lipid, and polymers like proteins or DNA and RNA.
This is because it's easier to displace the electrons since the forces of attraction between the electrons and protons in the nucleus are weaker. So the more readily displacement of electrons means the molecule is also more ultimately polarizable. Now, when the molecules become polar, the melting and boiling points are raised because it takes more heat and energy to break those bonds. Therefore, the greater the mass, the more electrons present. Okay, as we've been saying. Now, dipole-dipole forces are similar to London dispersion forces, but they occur in molecules that are permanently polar versus that momentary polarity we just talked about with the London dispersion. Now, in that type of intermolecular interaction, the polar molecules, such as water, attracts the positive end of another polar molecule with its negative end of its dipole. The attraction between the two molecules, then, we call a dipole-dipole force. Okay, now all this chemistry so far is well and good, but remember, it's embedded in a biochemical environment. And this necessarily includes a discussion of metabolic pathways and cell ontogeny, even prior to the eukaryote. So you see glycolysis, for example, can provide energy without mitochondria. So in this sense, oxidative phosphorylation is therefore contingent and by deduction, not necessary for aerobic life. So in metaphysical terms, oxidative phosphorylation does not pass the principle of sufficient reason or the PSR. So yeah, it's contingent. PSR wants to argue that for every phenomenon, there will be clearly defined explanation for its existence. That's the sufficient reason, you see. But can we explain why oxidative phosphorylation exists when it's not necessary for the very purpose it achieves in the aerobic cell? Well, I could argue that in order to generate the much larger concentration of ATP necessary for uh, complex aerobic life, right? Multicellular, differentiated, etc. Oxidative phosphorylation sufficiently explains its reason for its existence. Now, another argument is more basic, even than the efficiency of glucose oxidation. And that is molecular oxygen is a byproduct of oxygenic photosynthesis, which of course drives electrons to reduce NADP to NADPH for photophosphorylation, uh, which is basically the splitting of water. And that, uh, so both of those things occur, the reduction of NADP and photophosphorylation, that is ATP synthesis. And all that's because of the splitting of water and that generates a flow of electrons and protons, right? So the net production of O2 obtains in the reduction of CO2 to glucose. There is also some photorespiration, which uh, I will discuss maybe a little bit later. In the context of binomial expansion is sufficient reason, I'm going to be able to include that because I suggest that binomial expansion of sufficient reason, something that I thought of, allows even mathematicians, not to, of course, make fun of mathematicians, <clears throat> to understand 
the second law of thermodynamics. So what is that all about? Well, in brief, we can look at it as a discussion of state function. So a macro state of a system is specified by giving its macroscopic properties like temperature, pressure, so on. Now, a micro state of a system describes the position and the velocity of every particle in that system. So for every macrostate, there are one or more microstates, okay? So for every cell, there are multiple integrated molecular dynamic pathways. You see how easily that transition is. Now, this is a statistical or state function, that's where the statistical comes from, interpretation of entropy and the second law of thermodynamics. So enthalpy, course, is the amount of heat content used or released in a system at a constant pressure. Enthalpy is usually expressed as the change in enthalpy. So the change in enthalpy is related to the change in the internal energy that's got a symbol called U, capital U, and a change in the volume V, which is, of course, multiplied by the constant pressure of the system. So you have a delta H equals Q at constant temperature. Thus, if we determine Q, remember Q equals CM delta T, okay? Now, what is that, okay? Well, <clears throat> remember that C is the specific heat, M is the mass, and delta T is the change in temperature. So if we determine Q at constant pressure, then we will have a value for change in entropy or delta H, okay? The law of conservation of energy implies that the amount of energy lost from reacting to chemicals, for example, is exactly the same as that gained by the surroundings. Thus, we are justified in using the equation delta H equals Q. Now, remember, any definition of the change in entropy S when the amount of heat Q is added, it's going to be delta S equals Q over T. T is time again. So that's another statement of the law, uh, second law of thermodynamics, which is the total entropy of an isolated system never decreases. It either increases or it stays the same. It stays the same if it's a reversible system. Right? Now also, keep this in mind, how can you calculate the energy that's absorbed or released in the reaction? Remember, the energy change is Cm delta T, or Q equals Cm delta T. Again, where C is specific heat, M is mass, and delta T is the change in temperature. Okay? So I hope you're following along here. We're getting somewhere. Now, enthalpy, again, is symbolized by H. It's the total energy of the system. Now, what I mean by that is the total kinetic and the potential energy. So delta H is the change in enthalpy when reactants go to products. So delta H equals H of products minus of enthalpy of products minus the enthalpy of reactants. That's the same as saying delta H equals H final minus H initial. So delta H, of course, could be positive or negative. Positive delta H indicates an endothermic reaction where the enthalpy of products is greater than the enthalpy of the reactants. And then negative delta H, which is the biological approach, indicates an exothermic reaction where the uh, enthalpy of the products is less than the enthalpy of the reactants. 
So what happens to the enthalpy of a system in endothermic versus exothermic reactions? Well, the answer to that simple question is enthalpy increases in endothermic reactions and enthalpy decreases in exothermic reactions. Now, biochemical reactions, as just alluded to, including membrane-associated activity, will occur spontaneously when conditions favor a negative delta H, negative change in enthalpy, okay? So you have possible microstates, right? So when you think about glycolysis, well, if glycolysis is lost as well as oxidative phosphorylation, can the cell survive? Well, yeah, in some ways it still can, and it does. Indeed, without any way to generate ATP metabolically, the cell can acquire uh, some kind of transfer of energy via substrate-level phosphorylation, like in the enzymes diphosphokinases and the adenylate kinases. Now, that's just merely transfer. There's no net synthesis. But it can act as a storage form of that phosphoryl group potential transfer, uh, and that's what you get with phosphocreatine storage and skeletal muscle, for example. Obviously, it has to be replenished. Um, so if those transferase reactions are missing, though, uh, the cell can still rely on sulfur metabolism for energy coupling. This is a very important area in biochemistry. Consider the thioester and lipid metabolism. Coenzyme A is, after all, a phosphopantothiene prosthetic group function, or we could call that whole thing a microstate. So if sulfur metabolism is missing, okay, iron, copper, manganese, zinc, and any other real transition metal can serve as an electron sink in redox. This indeed is used in the redox centers of the electron transport chain. But we do find absolutes for the um, PSR in biology. And it is... If there is no carbon-based molecules, the cell will not exist, okay? So the pr principle of sufficient reason when you talk about cells and you talk about living systems, I started out by saying that living systems are all cellular. So to follow the principle of sufficient reason, the most important aspect of all of this is carbon, right? Carbon-based molecules, not just carbon itself as the element. So let's go ahead and use a decent biochemical example of something for statistical interpretation of entropy and the second law. Uh, recall that pyruvate, for example, can be transaminated to alanine. It can be reduced to lactate. It could be oxidative decarboxylated to acetyl-CoA, and it could be carboxylated to oxaloacetic acid. Those are four fates of pyruvate. Plus, pyruvate could presumably not react at all, at least momentarily. So you have four states, depending on the bioequipoise of the cell. That mean, By that, I mean anabolic or catabolic. And differential gene expression, allosteric modifications, nutrient intake, central nervous system, HPA axis, hormonal influences, circulating lipoprotein profile, immune cell surveillance, and cell fate, including the Hayflick limit on division. Any of these microstates may occur without contradiction. 
Thus, they do not violate the first law, the basic law of logic, which is the excluded middle term, right? So hopefully we're following along here. By that, of course, if you recall, you can't have A and not A at the same time in the same space. Okay, that's the law of the excluded middle. So contrary, yes. Contradictory, no. Of course, all you have to do to figure that out is consult the square of opposition, something that I talk about quite a bit, right? So that's that's kind of where, I, I, where I'm leading to this, is to use logic, right? Using logic. Now, we can say that the second law of thermodynamics, okay, does not forbid certain processes. So all microstates are equally likely. However, some of them have an extraordinarily low probability of occurring, right? So a neuron, for example, expressing the gene for isocitrate lyase, which is a glyoxylate enzyme, or for example, a certain biochemist forgetting to add bar oil into his chainsaw, I mean, Maybe that's possible, you know, having isocitrate lias in a neuron or the, forgetting the bar oil in the chainsaw. But the odds are absurdly remote. But what if instead of four possible fates for pyruvate, getting back to our example, there were, say, a hundred possible fates for pyruvate? Every time you thought about pyruvate being converted, let's say not four, but a hundred. And um, existentially, that is the case when you think about the carbon flowing from pyruvate. So each could occur potentially equally, all things being constant, right? All those things I just talked about, anabolism, catabolism, differential gene expression, allosteric modifications, you understand? This is cell we're talking about. Right? This isn't chemistry in a test tube. This is biochemistry. Well, if you consider those 100 possible fates, um, in that instance, the possibility of having pyruvate not being metabolized at all, okay, if you do this binomial expansion, will be somewhere around 8 times 10 to the minus 31st. So effectively impossible for that to happen, right? Now think again about sufficient reason, the principle of sufficient reason. Okay, this is what I'm trying to couple together. Living systems, cells, and then using as examples biochemical pathway intermediates like pyruvic acid. We talked about the electron transport chain, oxidative phosphorylation and glycolysis as well so far. Okay. So just to remind you that during the TCA cycle, after you make uh, citrate from the uh, condensation of uh, oxalacetic acid and acetyl-CoA, citrate is um, converted to cis-aconitate, and aconitate ultimately to de-isocitrate. Now, if you follow the TCA cycle, you hit the first dehydrogenase, which is decarboxylating, and you'd ultimately make 2-oxaglutarate and then ultimately succinyl-CoA. But there is a diversion and this is the diversion that occurs in plants and in microbes. And that's the isocitrate lias enzyme. So what if isocitrate is converted to not to oxoglutarate, but rather to glyoxylate and succinate? 
Well, Saxony could continue on the TCA cycle, bypassing Sakoe, and he can. In other words, he could be converted to fumarate and then malate. But <clears throat> the glyoxylate, if there's another enzyme, also found in higher plants and in bacteria, called malate synthase, those are the two unusual novel enzymes from novel genes in higher plants and in bacteria. Those two, isocitrate lyase and malate synthase. Well, you can convert glyoxylate to malate because of the uh, glyoxylate uh, 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 reacting with acetyl-CoA. Now you've made malate. And that will allow then this process to take lipids and convert them directly into carbohydrates. And that's what that pathway does in plants and in bacteria. It doesn't happen in neurons or anywhere else in the animal cell. So if those genes were expressed, imagine the change in metabolism, for example, in the neuron. If the neuron could take lipids and convert it to carbohydrate, what would that do to the equipoise of glucose uptake and glucose utilization vis-a-vis glycolysis in the neuron and fatty acid oxidation in the um, microglia would totally corrupt that interaction, right? What would it do to neural transmission? God only knows because it doesn't exist, right? So that's what I'm trying to do. I give you that hypothetical to think again on this principle of specific reason. That's why I'm bringing this all up to you. So the final thing you can ask is, all those components of the cell seem to be contingent, maybe. But must the cell exist? So I argue for life, the answer is unequivocal. Cells are universal and necessary, okay? So they fulfill what I call the synthetic a priori nature of metaphysical event ontology. Indeed, you could imagine any of the metabolic pathways in the cell could perhaps find that none or each one of them at some time are not necessary. So therefore they're not, they're all, they are then only contingent because they're involved in some other couple system or some synonymous biochemical iteration. However, that's a reductionist perspective since there is no evidence to support the concept of multiple contingencies relying on only one necessity in, bio, in biology that is the event, right? And of its own certain agency. That would be the one necessity. An event is dependent only upon itself and its own certain agency, certain agency, right? These are my metaphysical terms here uh, for including this in the discussion. So in the deeper sense of cellular metabolism, all pathways must function apodictically. They must occur, right? In terms of the mode regardless of potential redundancy. So in that range of viable alternatives, each must contribute to the system according to the mechanisms inherent to their structure. So biological reductionism is at foundation, I would say, actually an argument for design. (laughs) Because the design of basic molecules, that is structures of the molecules, requires a certain functionality. So in that argument for biological reductionism, all the reactions and the enzymes which catalyze them that are translated from their messenger RNA that is itself transcribed by its own complementary DNA sequences are necessary for gene expression. Ewipso, all their primary structures would dictate secondary and tertiary structures, which for the reaction centers and allosteric sites 
perform as necessary for specific reaction mechanisms and their metabolic control are all indeed a further elaboration of an inherited necessity. Now, I would say, however, cellular biology, the biochemical and biophysical processes that obtain do not explain life, excepting that as we discover and uncover these systems, we do find how these events happen at the phenomenological level. So because of all of this, I reject reductionism since the argument in favor of that hypothesis requires that the simplest structures and events they require would need to be sufficient to explain life. And indeed they don't. I just gave you, I hope, multiple examples, right? So the ultimate thing I want to say then this last minute, right? Simpler argument against abductionism can be sparked by asking why all this complexity? If selection pressure carved out every atomic structure in every quantum state, shouldn't there be an elimination of any and all variation that's not necessary for function? Yet, this is not what we observe in the world, right? We do not observe this in nature. Molecular variation is as flawed as species diversity and individuals within species obtain even greater depth of differences. So what of life itself then? Is life necessary? How do you answer that question? One way is to ask if there is sufficient reason for its existence, okay? And so for that, you either have to come up with a theological reason or a spiritual reason, or perhaps there's still one other way out. And then we'll get to that next time. Hopefully I, you found this to be a nice bouquet of roses. Dan Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry saying bye for now. <laughs>